Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Triano, joined always by Stephen, Ken, Ustrisi. Yeah, almost got you that time, too. <laughs> I know. I was waiting to see if, like, Zoom froze or something, but no, <laughs> you were just messing with me. But hello, everybody. <laughs> this is episode number 28, and today we are speaking with Dr. Sabina Klaus from the National Music Museum and curator of the Utley Collection. It was awesome getting to speak with Dr. Klaus today. We were familiar with her work as a contributor to societies such as the Historical Brass Society and uh, the American Musical Instrument Society mm -hmm. and the Historical Instrument Window column from the International Trumpet Guild. So knowing all of Sabina's work through both the Utley Collection, through all these different organizations, uh, we are extremely excited and honored to have her on the show today. Yeah, back-to-back -back museum episodes, but we, again, we love the museums. Uh, <laughs> and this one, um, the, the Utley collection is massive. Um, and a little later on in the episode, you'll get to hear her talk about the history of the collection, which is pretty fascinating. Um, and the plans they have for the future of the collection and the future of the National uh, Music Museum in South Dakota, uh, which is great and very exciting. And we hope that COVID goes away very quickly for a lot of reasons. <laughs> But one For main sure. reason is so that uh, we and you and anyone who's interested can get to the National Music Museum when they finish all their renovations and construction and have uh, all their new exhibits out and ready to be viewed. So if you like what you're hearing on the show, you can support us on Patreon, Teespring, and of course, all you can follow us on all the social media platforms and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. We'd greatly appreciate that. Uh, as you know, our website eabbpodcast.com has a lot of resources on it as well as well as show notes for every episode so we'll have a bunch of links there for you uh, including to her books and some of the on robust online uh, materials that the National Music Museum has published without further ado here is episode number 28 with Dr. Sabina Klaus enjoy Thank you so much, Dr. Sabina Klaus, for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast with us today. We're so honored and thrilled to have you on today. So thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> uh, for, for each episode, uh, Stephen and I kind of like to get things rolling a little bit with having our guests talk a little bit about maybe their, their musical background and kind of what brought them to their current point in their career. So can you talk a little bit about your musical upbringing and, and what kind of got you to where you are today with the National Music Museum? Well, I grew up in a little village in Germany with two brass bands. One was the municipal band and the other one was the church band. So that is, a, it's sort of a, a misnomer. It's called Posaunenchor, which mm -hmm. means trombone choir, but it's basically a um, brass band that plays in church. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really grow up playing brass instruments. I started with the recorder and then the piano and violin and then got into church music, played the organ in my home village and other places. And very soon realized that although I was very interested in making music, I also sang in choirs all my life. I wasn't really a terribly good musician. <laughs> <laughs> and but I really wanted to do something with music. And I realized um, that I could study musicology in Tübingen, which was just about 
10 miles from where I grew up. So I enrolled in that. And at some point, I had a professor who had been the curator at a musical instrument collection. And that was about the same time when I also participated in a course in a youth hostel building a clavichord that is an, a very early uh, keyboard instrument, sort of a, a precursor of the piano. Mm -hmm. And those two elements just got me hooked on the opportunity of doing something with musical instruments. And this professor, um, Manfred Hermann Schmid, he is mostly um, a Mozart scholar. Mm. He had the right connections. And so I he got me into um, the Stadtmuseum in Munich to collect, uh, to catalog clavichords. <laughs> and that was my master thesis. <laughs> and from there, I expanded the topic into keyboard instruments, that's harpsichords, clavichords, early pianos up to 1830 and catalogued the instruments again in the municipal um, museum in Munich. And that opened up this whole world. It's like a, a small family with musical instrument museums and collections worldwide. Mm -hmm. You very quickly get the right contacts by simply being there. Hmm. And then that led to a um, project in Vienna at the Techn Technical Museum, P pretty much the same work, cataloging, assessing um, historic keyboard instruments. And that um, then led to my PhD about the collection in, in Munich mainly. And after that, I had a um, two-year position as a curatorial assistant in Nuremberg. And at that point, I met the curator of the musical instrument collection at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Mm -hmm. And he had the idea, Lawrence Libin, whether I wouldn't want to come um, to New York for a year for with a fellowship, with a research fellowship. And at that stage, I was still solidly rooted in string keyboard instruments. So I worked at the Met for a year, cataloging square pianos, early German square pianos. And that mm. then led to two articles in the American Musical Instrument Journal, mm. Very cool. both um, um, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. And at that stage, the US seemed just a little interim. <laughs> so I went back to Europe and had another three-year position as a curatorial assistant at the His Historical Museum in Basel in Switzerland. Oh, okay. And that collection includes the Wilhelm Bernoulli collection. That is a collection of 900 brass instruments. Oh, wow. So this is the first time I actually got in touch seriously with brass instruments. I had done a little bit of research in Nuremberg about wire drawers, mm -hmm. 
mm. who were um, a metal producing craft similar to the trumpet makers in Nuremberg. So there was some knowledge and interest in brass instruments from my Nuremberg days, but, but actually being paid for doing brass work that started in, in Basel. And again, that was um, a limited position. And towards the end of that, um, Andre Larson, the uh, then director of the National Music Museum, who had, whom I had met during my New York times, approached me and asked me whether I would be considering to become the curator of the, the Utley collection at the National Music Museum. Mm. And it, it was a big step to, to decide to go to the States mm. basically for well, for good or for for long periods of times, and that was that decision was in in the summer of 1999, and then they hired me um, in November, and it it took another five months for me to get the visa, and, and then I did some research in in Europe. Joe Utley came over. We picked uh, picked up an instrument that he bought in in Germany, and so so I had already the opportunity of getting to know Joe, and I had met Drella in um, in the summer of 1999 in Spartanburg, South Carolina, where they lived and where the collection was, hmm. and. Um, yeah, and then I started um, in Spartanburg um, in April 2000. Hmm. And the collection stayed there till spring 2020. So it's only now. Oh, actually. And well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that later on. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I didn't know that that move was so recently to, to yeah. South Dakota. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you were mentioning how there's kind of this organization, a coalition of these different instrument museums kind of throughout the world. And it's kind of its own little community. Is there like a rough number of like the prestigious, like well-known types of museums that house those types of instrument collections? Like, are there 10 are there are closer to 50? Like, I, I have no idea like what the scope of that community is like. That's an interesting question. Well, I didn't really do my homework on exact numbers, but it's the subcategory of the International Committee of Museums, ICOM. And the subcategory is called, um, the, the acronym is SIMSIM. It stands for Collections of um, Musical Instruments and Music. I don't have the exact numbers, yeah, but I would of say it's it's over a thousand. Gotcha. And you would be very surprised to see how many museums have musical instruments. Not that many have specialized departments, but even if you have just a smaller collection of musical instruments that might be part of the furniture department because pianos are basically furniture mm, yeah. then you could still join that group since and and that is global and it's under the umbrella of of the international museums um society so there are quite a lot yeah and yeah, yeah it well. is just but they are still not 
that many that we wouldn't feel like we are sort of a family and and it's it's very supportive hmm. a very supportive group gotcha is there kind of like a a top three of what's considered maybe the either the most numerous in collection mm -hmm. or maybe the most prestigious in collection well that is uh, certainly something we claim to be. We have the National Music Museum has 15,000 instruments. Wow. And a lot of it is high quality, but not all of it, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so we certainly claim to be one, one of, of the most important musical instrument collections. And there are... Um, then in this to to stay in the states, of course, it's it's the musical instrument co collection at the Metropolitan Museum, at the Museum of Fine Arts. Then Yale University has a very good collection, mm -hmm. um, and then among the newer museums, it's the Musical Instrument Museum in Phoenix, Arizona, mm -hmm. that um, has also just shut up um, and made itself very prominent. And then um, in Europe, it's, it's collections in Vienna and in Paris and in Brussels, several collections in London and in Edinburgh. So it's, it's, it's quite a sizable number. Mm -hmm. There is an international website, the Musical Instrument Museums Online, which is a joint project of a lot of these museums. Mm. And um, if you put that in, then you can just search for instrument types. You can search for makers, number, uh, makers names. And I think that can be a, a very useful tool. And, I shall be happy to send you a link for that as well. So we can talk about the Obi collection in a second, but maybe before we get there, could you just give us a, a little bit of background about the National Music Museum in um, South Dakota, where, where you <laughs> currently are, um, and then we can get into the collection from there. That story starts with a farm boy in Minnesota, Arnie B. Larson. And he was supposed to take over the family farm, but was very interested in music. So he played the clarinet and the violin and in the end got um, a degree, a master's degree in music from Northwestern University and then got a job in Brookings, South Dakota, which is about an hour and 45 minutes straight up north of Vermilion. Mm. And um, taught, um, yeah, taught music, was the band and orchestra leader there. And his interest in collecting really came very much from his desire to learn more instruments and to discover the sounds that all these weird instruments make. And he, he was born in 1904. And in 1917, the American Federation of Musicians agreed on 440 as the standard pitch. Mm -hmm. At that time, there were still lots of Midwestern bands who played at high pitch. 
453-ish, two, three, something like that. So all of a sudden, and it, it had been a gradual process. It, it went back to um, 1904 when um, at the St. Louis exhibition, um, there were pressures to, to standardize to 440. But all of a sudden there were all these high pitch instruments, brass instruments, band instruments, woodwinds, bands, um, that were basically useless. So Arty Larson went around and got them for very little money if he paid for them at all. (laughs) (laughs) And that became the first core of the collection. And then after the Second World War, when Europe was starving and the US wasn't so much, um, he managed to get a lot of good European instruments basically for, well, bread and butter. Mm. And that ended up to be two, over 2,000 instruments. Wow. Just just from in, Europe or in addition to what he had? Already? All together, gotcha. all together yeah, in yeah. his house in Brookings, South Dakota. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like... Every collector, the older you get, the more you realize you're not immortal. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just always the same problem. Then you realize, well, what's going to happen with with my collection, whatever it is, whether Mm. it's cars or anything. Mm -hmm. So um, at some point, Arnie Larson got in touch with the University of South Dakota in Vermilion, which was the the nearest fine arts college Mm -hmm. to where he was in Brookings. And they realized that this is a fabulous tool for education. Mm -hmm. So eventually they, the the College of Fine Arts and the music department offered Arnie Larson a professor of music position because he was also a a very accomplished band leader and and orchestra conductor. So it was all um, very sensible to to get him on the staff Mm -hmm. of the University of South Dakota. So he transported his 2000 instruments and his family <laughs> to a house at University Street. It's it's a pretty big house, but um, imagining that there were over 2000 instruments in it, you can just imagine where they were. They were just absolutely yeah. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Right. And that is the environment in which Arne, Andre Larson, the founder of the National Music Museum grew up in. He was the eldest son of Arnie, Hmm. Andre Larson. Arnie always had dreamt of a shrine to music as an equivalent to the shrine to democracy, which is Mount Rushmore, Hmm. to sort of counterbalance the Western South Dakota tourist attraction in Eastern South Dakota. In the end, the museum got the Carnegie Library building of the university in Vermilion. Once the university and several other museums had moved out, 
And in July of 1973, Andre Larson, the son, was officially appointed as the first director of the then Shrine to Music Museum. Hmm. It was only renamed in 2002 to the National oh, Museum. Okay. And yeah, and basically then the, the next steps were that Andre Larson was a fabulous administrator. He built up uh, relationships with the University of South Dakota which um, finances several positions and he built up a board of trustees. So he, he mm. built up the financial foundation yeah. and the, the board of trustees also um, approved and financed very important acquisitions. Most of all, um, a collection of early string, Italian strings, the mm. Witten collection and that in 1984, that's really when the National Music Museum was put on the map as um, an internationally recognized institution. And then the other thing that Andre did, uh, he set up um, a graduate uh, program for the history of musical instruments and oh, wow. several uh, important people have come out of, of that program as well. Is that a, a, a unique program to that university? That's, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I, it, I haven't heard of that type of degree at yeah. anywhere else. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a master of masters of music program within the University of South Dakota, but it is unique um, with the focus on on historic. Uh, the history of musical instruments yeah. and um, it, it can have a focus on conservation, on um, museum studies and in particular on, on curatorial work. Mm -hmm. wow. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that's great. The, the Utley collection is from where we are now and where we've come from sort of just bang on the, in the middle. When, um, when I start, the Utley collection numbers are between 6,700 and 7,300 roughly. Oh. And now we have 15,000 instruments. <laughs> so there, in the last 20 years, there have, has been a lot of collecting going on yeah. but um, the Utley collection is of course particularly important for you guys because <laughs> it is exclusively um, a brass collection it's, it it focuses on high brass trumpets cornets mm -hmm. has a few low brass instruments it's 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 sort of just um, in in the middle of of the whole history or story of of the National Music Museum as as we see it at the moment. Of course, we hope that there is lots of future yeah, to it. Joe Utley um, came to collecting as a musician. And there are obviously that you must have a reason for collecting something. And we've already talked about Arnie Larson, whose reason was to Basically, he collected these instruments to collect sound. Mm -hmm. 
Joe Utley's interest was much more focused. He collected trumpets like you do at first. You have you don't have just one trumpet. You have mm-hmm. a B flat trumpet, a flugelhorn. Yeah. <laughs> you have a C trumpet, a D trumpet, a piccolo. Yeah. So I often in in tours, I often particularly with trumpet students, I say, well, be careful. You might end up with 600 of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, of course, you, you constantly search for, for the best instrument, for what you want to express as a musician. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how it started for Joe. Um, Joella um, was a pianist. They both met at the end of high school. And it was very much symbiosis. She supported him. He support, supported her initially with, with the musical talents that they had, but they were also very sensible people. And um, Joe trained as a physician. So he went into pre-medical school while Jella was... Um, supporting them both with um, music teaching position. And once he had finished his degrees and was a a qualified doctor, she went into training and um, got a radiation oncology degree. Joe was quite a pioneer in bypass heart surgery. If if you search around a bit, he he wrote very important textbooks that are in the third edition now. And and he if you if you talk if you talk to heart surgeons, it's it's quite likely that they have heard of Joe Attlee. Hmm, interesting. And that's basically also um, where the money of the Utley Foundation comes from. He was very successful in organizing um, research symposia in San Diego in the 1980s. And and the Utley Foundation is the foundation that has financed and supported my position since 1999. the, the, tragic, the tragic thing was once Joe had collected all these instruments and he had a, a beautiful idea for his retirement, he built, he joined Jella, built um, a beautiful home in upstate South Carolina um, near Spartanburg, north, north of Spartanburg at the foothills of the Appalachians, hmm, on a 175 nice. acre a farm not bad and when i first came <laughs> when i first came there they had 50 cows there <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and this house was sort of built around this collection and he also increased it quite dramatically after they moved in in 1994 but then he was diagnosed with lymphoma mm-hmm. and then they went around and, and searched for a long-term solution for the collection because they wanted this whole collection to stay together, 600, over 600 instruments. Mm-hmm. And the solution was the National Music Museum, the ideal solution really in, in many ways because 
at that time, there was no space for the collection. Mm-hmm. But the, the National Music Museum could provide the support, the institutional support for it. And Joella, who was then in 2001, left on her own in this house surrounded by this collection, mm-hmm. didn't want to part with the collection because yeah. the house was, the, the collection was all part of the architecture. Interesting. So that is why the collection stayed in the, her house. And this is why I mostly worked with the collection in South Carolina hmm. on the farm. Um, yeah, the, the collection just stayed there till Joella passed away last summer. Gotcha. And she was very supportive, not only financially, she was also very interested in, in the book project, in having tours. She even did tours herself in my, when I wasn't there. And so it, it was just an, an ideal symbiosis between, between her interest, her way of keeping Joe's legacy and, and still being able to live surrounded by, by these beautiful objects. Yeah. Joe had, um, there, there were um, balconies with shelves. I mean, just many, many, many shelves. Yeah, yeah. And the instruments were just displayed out in the open on these shelves. Mm-hmm. Joe also had, having the, the interest of playing, he had lots of instruments made playable. Um, Rob Stewart, whom you also interviewed, yeah, yeah. Um, restored the high-end stuff. And then um, Rich Eiter in Atlanta also um, restored a lot. And of course, with, with Spartanburg and Atlanta being about two and a half hours drive, it was very easy to basically take whole carloads of instruments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And um, so from a, from a conservation standpoint, I had it easy because lots of instruments were already taken care of. Yeah, yeah. So they were able to make an agreement with the museum that at some point the museum would take on the collection or is that something that you had to help further organize uh, in the early 2000s? Well, Joe and Joella decided to donate their collection to the National Music Museum, which at that stage was still called the Shrine to Music Museum in 1999. And at the same time to instate the Joe R. and Joella F. Utley Curator of Brass Instruments, which is the position that I have and, and finance it through the Utley Foundation. That was very important for um, Arnie Larson, Andre Larson, the the director, because, and in general, um, that becomes more and more of sort of an issue that people don't quite realize that when you give a collection to a museum, it also costs money to do something with it. Mm. Mm -hmm. And 
Some collectors have fabulous collections, but all their money went into collecting these fabulous collections. Mm -hmm. So a museum then just gratefully accepts this fabulous collection, and then they have to go and interest somebody else to pay for its upkeep. Mm. Yeah. yeah, makes sense. And that was the special thing with Joe. He not, Joe and Joella, he, they not only had a fabulous collection to give to the National Music Museum, mm. but they also had the means to help with the upkeep and, and the research and the publishing and everything. The first, I was in, in South Carolina um, full-time for nine years, basically turning um, a private collection into a public collection as far as, as organizing goes, cataloging everything, cleaning things like cases, um, photographing everything with, together with, with a photographer in Spartanburg, Mark Lenke. And, and all of that work is the foundation of the books. Gotcha. All of that work also is now um, the foundation, what's online. Mm -hmm. The the whole, the, um, well, 90% of the athlete collection is already online mm -hmm. in um, on the National Music Museum website called eMuseum. And I will also provide you with the links for that. Thank you. And, and that, that will show you um, basically the work that the Atli Foundation paid for me to do and for the photographer to do. Gotcha. And then to make it available to the public. Mm -hmm. yeah. Fantastic. Are, are all the instruments of the Utley collection uh, currently in South Dakota or have not all of them made the, the trek yet? 10% were already in South Dakota for a number of reasons over a number of years. There was a small display dedicated to the Utley collection in the hallway. There were several special exhibitions over the years. Uh, the most prominent recent one was in 2014 for the Adolf Sachs anniversary, where there were instruments from the Utley collection. But everything else remained in South Dakota, uh, in South Carolina, in Spartanburg, um, until this spring. We had a few months, Trella died last year in July, and we needed some time to prepare the move. Mm -hmm. And then we started the move um, in the preparations for the move in February of this year, 2020. What and a great time to, to start doing. That. Yeah. So I was, yeah. I was basically in the middle, in the middle of it all. Um, when the travel bands from Europe came in, yeah. I had hacked 200 instruments in cases and um, basically went into a panic that I could, 
could not go back. And <laughs> so I left in March and then my colleague, two of my colleagues um, picked up in May. Um, I had luckily uh, managed to tag every instrument with a barcoded label mm -hmm. that we had already created for um, from the museum to have it in our database. Yes. So everything was organized. It just had to be packed, finished packing, and then transported. And so two of my colleagues went down there with um, a truck and an RV uh. and did that twice over, and now the whole collection is in South Dakota. The timing is very fortunate because only last year, the museum got a brand new storage building, the Center for Conservation, um, Preservation and Research. And that's where the entire Utley collection is now. Um, accounted for everything in its right place. Mm -hmm. And so just recently we we matched our documents with the actual instruments and we have everything accounted for. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. I'm sure that, that was <laughs> extremely stressful with but, the, yeah. the theme of 2020. So <laughs> Yes, it was extremely difficult to do this this year. And of course, all our plans, I, if I look at, at my schedule of, of 2020 and all the crossed out <laughs> events, it was yeah. just, it was very traumatic. And it's a huge, huge relief that we've actually arrived at this point. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. Is that storage building... Uh allow for display also as a purely just a, a storage building? That is purely a storage and research building. Gotcha. We are basically looking at the muse at the National Music Museum as it is now. We we are looking at a number of ways to serve the public and to care for the collections. The, the storage building has the main purpose of storing and caring for the collection, but it also has the purpose of making the collection accessible to specialized researchers, musicians mm -hmm. who, who want to see an, an instrument close up for a number of reasons to mm -hmm play it if possible to look at it for historic interest and research and also we have quite a lot of makers who look at instruments of various vintage mm -hmm. to yeah. reproduce them like Rob Stewart does as well mm -hmm. definitely so kind of as a as a maybe an overgeneralization but would you say that it's accurate that we would then describe uh, the Utley collection as it exists in South Dakota is kind of being by appointment for musicians and then at, but then as like a public exhibit it's maybe a virtual exhibit then? It's both of these types but then the, the third leg which is the most important for sort of the the, the public face of the of the museum and as well as the the Utley collection is that we are now working 
on a complete revamp of the museum building. It was the, the old Carnegie Library that I mentioned earlier has been um, extended by, I, I think it's at least a third more. It's probably a bit more than that mm. with new office buildings. So, um, and, and a new um, concert hall, new special exhibition uh, gallery. And that opened up a lot more space in the old Carnegie Library. And I would encourage you to have a look at um, the images on online of mm -hmm. how, how it looks and how it will look. Definitely. That is all now a 15,000 square foot uh, new display, nice. which we are working on. Very cool. And about right now, I have defended 14% of the Utley collection to be on display. It might be a little bit less, mm -hmm. but it's going to be a, at least 10% of the Utley collection on display. On average, the rest is going to be only up to 4%. So I've been yeah, <laughs> very <win>. aggressively yeah. <laughs> uh, defending um, the percentage of the Utley collection, but that also reflects on its quality. Mm -hmm. That in many ways I I could just um, compare to, for example, early brass in um, particularly 19th century brass pre, um, well the the stuff basically that Arnie Larson collected, that is often not in as good a condition as similar examples in the Utley collection, mm -hmm. because Joe had a lot restored in a in a good way yeah yeah of course yeah. and and so uh, that is one reason why i could actually defend more than average mm -hmm. of the utley collection to go on on display and do you think that it's possible that uh brass musicians or historians might just have that uh greater interest in brass history than maybe some other instruments uh are the technology technology advancements in brass instruments maybe draw greater attention than than some of the other instrument families well in general what what the new displays will the 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 target audience for the new displays are normal people basically hmm. not the specialists gotcha but we we have more more general topics basically what we were trying to accomplish is to show human creativity and culture through musical instruments that's mm -hmm. sort of our theme yeah, yeah. our big our big idea as one calls it these mm -hmm. days so we've been trying to avoid to be too specialized and that's why we encourage specialists once we are open to consider the the displays only as sort of a first step. Mm -hmm, definitely. And then if you're more interested in, in greater detail and don't find what you think should be there, that's what you find on our website. And that then also leads, uh, leads you to 
what you might want a special appointment for to go into the storage facility. Yeah, this is the, those those are the three pillars, so to speak, yeah, yeah, that that sense. we hope that people make use of. Yeah, and you're saying yeah. that's 2022 is the projected completion of of that. Yeah, well, the 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 current projected completion that we have on the website is 2021. It Everything depends on on how COVID develops. Um, I've had um, a traveling exhibition of the Utley collection in the last since 2018. It went to a few places: um, a museum in New Jersey, and then a museum in South Carolina. And that exhibition might be uh, ready in 2021, but that de depends on how how it how the pandemic develops and whether yeah. anybody is going to come and Stephen so and I 2022 will... is the safer bet yeah of course definitely <laughs> we will come and check yeah Stephen and i will come <laughs> so going back just briefly speaking about uh the quality of of the utley collection overall are there some gems or any any like really notable instruments that that you might want to highlight here basically the um the Utley collection spans roughly from the late 17th century to the end of the 20th century. Um, there, there is nothing from the 21st century because Joe died in January of 2001. Mm -hmm. And we had had a few instrument, newer instruments already commissioned at that point, but but there's that's basically when it stops. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, we have some very good um, Baroque instruments. It starts with uh, a, a very special gem. It's, it's a little horn about this size. It is really, you, you can put it in the palm of your hands. Huh. <laughs> and it's dated 1681, and it's the earliest surviving instrument of Johann Wilhelm Haas, who is the iconic trumpet maker of the late 17th, early 18th century, I mean, oh. Bach mm -hmm. yeah, period. Yeah, yeah. And so we are very proud of that. And we have a few other instruments. The Adli collection has a few other instruments by Haas, then another uh, early hunting horn, uh, also from uh, the Nuremberg school. Then um, there's, there's the prototype um, of the English slide trumpet. Hmm. Um, that is an instrument that started um, life as a natural trumpet by George Henry Rodenbostel in London and was then converted into a slide trumpet and by Richard Woodham. And, and there is documentary evidence that this really was the first attempt to do a mechanical um, English slide trumpet. And those instruments were in use for handle performances all through the 19th century. Oh. Mm -hmm. Then we have um, a very good collection of Civil War instruments, including um, an over-the-shoulder cornet 
with Valve's end keys by E.G. Wright. Um, How how does that work? (laughs) It's it's interesting. It's basically the, it has three valves as normal, Mm -hmm. uh, string rotary valves. And then it has the five uppermost keys of a 12 key bugle. So if you read um, Alan Dotworth's Brass Band School from from 1853, you have actually a description that the the valves would help in the lower range and the keys would improve the upper range. And of course, it's great for trills and stuff like that. We recorded that instrument with... Jeff Stockham, um, mm-hmm. and that's actually uh, part of the DVD of Volume Four of, of Volume Three of my books. Gotcha. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, to come a bit more to to recent times, Joe had two trumpets, a C and a B flat trumpet, commissioned in 1985 from Dave Monette, when mm-hmm. he really wasn't that famous yet. So I think this this is quite interesting. And then we also have a flumpet that Joe commissioned from Dave Monette, which has custom decoration by a um, goldsmith, Tammy Dean, on on them on it. it. It's little miniature cutouts of instruments from the collection. Oh wow. So it's it's a real beautiful instrument that we will definitely have on display. What would be a what would be considered a flumpet? It's basically a trumpet um, that has a, a slightly wider bore um, and has some flugelhorn qualities gotcha. to so, it so something in the middle between yeah, the two. something in the middle <laughs> it's basically a dave monette um invention <laughs> the yeah, term yeah. and that's awesome yeah. very very cool what kind of considerations um go into determining what instrument would be displayed and one that might be be kept in storage when, when you're when you're talking about you know making this this new display uh, this is this is really something we're bang in the middle of right now. Um, we are a curatorial team of, I think, nine, if you include the director. Um, some of us have specialties, like the string person and the woodwind person. Some have specialties, like myself, that overlap slightly with other people's you you probably um, know about um, the con research of Dr. Uh, Margaret Banks. And so there we we work together and, and fight it out basically, <laughs> who gets the most instruments. We have a concept I mentioned already a little bit. We are working with a uh, design firm Lucy Creative in Chicago, and they helped us to step beyond being just specialists hmm. and creating a display that works for the generally interested public. Mm-hmm. And we've 
we've come up with topics like um, the venues where musical instruments play, the home, the concert hall. Then we have an introduction gallery where we sort of start with musical instruments at the very beginning. Um, we have one section with with percussion and the other section with brass instruments. The brass instruments in, in that section start with conchs. Mm. So we, we choose, coming back to your question, we choose the instruments according to the topics that we have chosen. Then upstairs, for example, we have one area completely dedicated to innovation. And in that group, brass innovation deals heavily with valve developments, how you get from a natural trumpet through the um, um, slide trumpet, key trumpet, key bugle to the valve instruments. And you choose these instruments according to these topics, but also you want to have your gems out. Mm -hmm. For example, all these gems that I mentioned earlier, they are all out. Is there some kind of uh, schedule or rotation in terms of maintenance for these instruments, both the ones that are on display and also the ones that are in storage? Like, mm. are there considerations for oiling and greasing <laughs> the instruments? Yeah. yeah, it's a very good question. Um, Starting with the instruments that are on display, um, some of them are more light sensitive, particularly the strings. We don't have that problem with, mm. with the brass. So the, the strings, um, particularly we had huge problems with guitars with modern plastics in them deteriorating. Mm -hmm. So those instruments need to rotate for their own benefit. Right. Brass doesn't have that problem so much. Mm -hmm. When Joe, when I started uh, with the Utley collection, the collection was basically a playing collection. With, you, can, you can do that if you are um, a player that just plays around with everything. Mm -hmm. From a museum standpoint of view, we are more concerned with protecting the object as it is. Mm -hmm. So we don't keep them all oiled and okay. greased um, because that, that can cause some, some problems too. I had um, quite a lot of recordings with with musicians and of course for those recordings we would grease and oil them mm -hmm. and then um it's also a, a, for a curator and a conservator it's it's an ongoing learning process so only after i had allowed certain uh, oils and greases to be used i realized that some may have been harmful mm, so only in um, in arrears, since I was working with a museum in Berlin at that point, I was able to analyze certain uh, valve oils, and some are fine, and others are not fine. Mm -hmm. So you you constantly need to strike the right balance between 
protecting the instruments and sometimes using them because that's what they were made for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So and, it's not a, a yes and no answer. Mm -hmm. Along similar lines, we've talked to previous guests like Rob Stewart and Garmin Bowers, and we've talked to them about that line in terms of uh, where do you cross it in terms of instrument restoration at any point. And you, you were just alluding to it just now. Uh, is there any instance where either in the Utley collection or instruments, uh, other brass instruments in the museum where you would consider doing a restoration or repair or anything, or are you, are you set on having everything kind of stay as is, as you receive it? Mm -hmm. It's again, it's, it's not, it's not a black and white um, mm -hmm. answer to this question. To some extent, it has to do with your personal ethics. As museum people, we have different personal ethics from a musician because as a musician, you are primarily interested in the instrument as a sounding object. As a museum person, your prim primary responsibility is to preserve historical evidence. And it's, it's really, it's, it's not that much different to care for a musical instrument than it is to care for a historical document from the 15th century or 11th century or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And everything you do to a musical instrument or an object, you always run the risk of inadvertently destroying certain historic evidence. Mm -hmm. So from a museum, from a sort of an orthodox museum perspective, if you leave a thing alone, you don't destroy evidence. Mm -hmm. true. But that's the most extreme position you can take. If you do nothing, an object can also deteriorate further, particularly a brass instrument, mm -hmm. because if there is some deterioration going on already, it can basically self-destruct or it can continue to do self-harm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. If you have corrosion going on, you just really have to do something. Mm -hmm. As far as the Utley collection goes, I was in, in the lucky position that in many ways, in, in many instances, I was not even faced with that decision hmm. because it, it came to the National Music Museum as a heavily restored playing, playing collection. <laughs> so the heavily restored part, I didn't have to make a decision on. Yeah, it was yeah. already made. Mm -hmm. I would probably have been a bit more careful with some things, mm -hmm. but I've always considered it an advantage to have not had that burden on my shoulders yeah. to make these decisions. And it made it a lot easier for me to care for the collection, particularly in a home environment, because Angela was living in that house. It mm -hmm. wasn't a museum. And yeah, yet it was institutionally already 
belonging to the museum. So for example, over the years, those silver instruments that were lacquered already by Rich Eiter, they weren't a problem. I could have them all on display. Mm-hmm. All the ones that I cleaned for photography because Andre Larson wanted to have that, I mm-hmm. would not have necessarily done that either. Mm-hmm. But all those turn tarnished more afterwards. Mm. Gotcha, gotcha. So all of those I kept, there was also sort of a storage area in Jella's house. I kept, I kept out of sight. Mm. So now when we want to display things, we need to decide, is the tarnished instrument that important that we want to clean it further? And then can we put it in an environment where it doesn't tarnish further? Mm-hmm. Or are we using something similar that is already restored and, and lacquered and, and therefore looks better? So it's, it's an endless weighing of advantages and disadvantages. And it's the same thing with playing. Some in our field are just dead against playing. Mm. Others would like to have everything played. I am sort of in the middle. I am, I, I wouldn't want an instrument of great significance just played by a player for a one-time personal benefit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I would be happy if that player then agreed to make a recording so we have a document of that instrument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a fascinating like puzzle to kind of put together, <laughs> you know, all those little decisions that go into it that, you know, for someone who has worked in museums, you know, for all of their mm. professional life, really. Yeah. And then, you know, someone who like Chris and I have been you know, playing pretty, pretty much the whole time. It's just like the different philosophies are always so fascinating to me about, you know, what is, what is maybe not more important, but like what to pay attention to, you know, when you're talking about these historical instruments, it's just. It can be very divisive also. And I just would like to mention that in, in my personal research, I have a tool that, sort of meets the two positions in the middle. I'm using a um, acoustic measuring device, which sends in a, a sine wave and measures the impedance of an instrument. Hmm. It's called um, BIAS. So basically it was developed by the um, Institute um, of Viennese um, well, I can't think of a, an, an English translation just now, Klangstil, um, style, style of sound, basically. Um, it's, it's part of um, the um, Vienna University. Mm. And the, the, the nice thing about this system is that it basically tells me something not only about the quality of an instrument without playing it, but in particular of its condition. Hmm. So if you, for example, if you have a leak somewhere in an instrument, you wouldn't see that, Mm -hmm. but you can see that in advance 
in these acoustical measurements. Wow. Mm-hmm. So if I have, if, if there are musicians coming, wanting to play, I can to some degree say in advance, you know, I think this instrument is not worth trying because my acoustic system <laughs> shows me it's not really a good player. Yeah, that's incredible. I didn't know that technology like that really existed. No, this this is really, I, I'm not an acoustician. I work with um, Bob Pyle in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, he's basically using my measurements and I have the whole collection measured. I have thousands wow. of these measurements yeah. um, and, and interprets it acoustically correct, but it, that system can be used on different levels. It can also just simply show you, and it's basically these impedance curves, they show you each harmonic and whether if it has a, um, a sharp peak, you, you know, this is, this is speaking well, this is mm-hmm. an, a harmonic that speaks well. And then you can also see which harmonics align well with with any sensible scale or not, whether it's out of tune or not. So yeah. I think it can be used on on different knowledge levels. You you can use it really professionally as an acoustician, but it can also tell you a lot as sort of a an educated lay person, as I would mm-hmm. call myself in in that field. Something that's been mentioned, uh, alluded to maybe a few times in the discussion has to relate to the photography and the the book project related to the Utley collection that you were able to complete while mm-hmm. uh, it sounded like while you're in South Carolina, right? W- working with the Utley collection, you're able to complete this project. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that project, Trumpets and Other High Brass? Yes. Um from the start, um, Joe Utley and Andre Larson, the founder of the museum, had the idea that there should be some visible output of this curatorship. And they had the idea that there should be a book um, detailing the history of high brass instruments based on the Utley collection. Mm-hmm. So that was from the start, that was the goal beyond the normal nitty gritty museum work. Mm-hmm. So these nine years in South Carolina, I gathered the physical material, in, including all these measurements, for example, also lots of physical measurements um, of the instruments and the photography. By the end of that time, I started to spend writing time on the book project in the UK. That's how it came about that I'm having more than one. I mean, up to last year, I had three locations, South Carolina, South Dakota, and the UK. And now it's only the UK and South Dakota. And by the time I had finished what I originally thought would be the first volume, which dealt with um, everything pre-Valve era, I realized this is getting too much. (laughs) 
So to make a long story short, we then just decided it's going to be a series of books. And um, the first two volumes, the first is um, instruments of the single harmonic series. So everything that just has is basically a tube. Yeah, natural horns and stuff. Natural horns, natural trumpets. Mm -hmm. That is volume one that came out in 2012. And then um, the second volume um, deals with all the instruments that have slides and keys and the expansion of the harmonic series. That came out in 2013. Mm -hmm. Since those two books... I conceived as the first volume originally <laughs> were already written. That's why they are so close together. Mm-hmm. And then the third volume came out in 2017. That deals with all these early valve developments. Mm. What I'm doing with the books is I start with the instruments in the Utley collection, sort of as the storyline. And then I fill in major gaps with instruments from other collections mm. and particularly with documents. The, the further I go, currently I'm finishing the fourth volume, which deals with, it, the title is Heyday of the Cornet. That deals with all the piston valve cornets. Okay. And there... I limit myself more and more to what's actually in the Utley collection because it gets richer and richer in material. Mm-hmm. And so I'm expecting to be the last volume, which is the modern trumpet, um, to be almost exclusively Utley collection. And okay. of course, there you the the more material you have, the more you need to the more concise you need to be and the more you need to make decisions and li- and, and limit yourself. Mm-hmm. But sure. basically the, the original idea of a book turned into this five volume book series. And I'm hoping, as I said, um, that volume four goes to the editor next, well, at the end of this year or early next year. Mm-hmm. So in the next couple, next few weeks, basically month or two mm-hmm. and um it's quite a long process to have them edited and then particularly laid out mm-hmm. because it's so heavily um illustrated visual. it's yeah. it's very visual i'm not cross-referencing um with with numbers normally i'm trying to have text and related image on the same page. Mm -hmm. These books are basically designed to be read on various different levels. It's it's sort of the entrance level is to browse through it and look at the pictures. Mm -hmm. That's why I have quite detailed picture headings. Mm -hmm. So if you just want to do that, you can do that. If you're then more interested, then you delve into the text. Mm-hmm. That's basically how I, I perceive them. And then the other thing um, that is particularly important for the volumes that are out already, because it's more in 
more unusual instruments is that each volume comes with a DVD with recorded instruments from the Utley collection. Mm -hmm. So you also have the, the oral part of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you feel like you're getting more time for this project as the, uh, the Utley collection has moved to its, its position in South Dakota <laughs> now or, or still busy with everything? <laughs> well, uh, COVID has really helped to, yeah, move, <laughs> <laughs> to move volume four uh, a long way ahead. Yeah. And it was particularly getting, I, in, in recent years, there have been a lot of additional projects that I was working on. I've also been cataloging sections of the Arnie Larson collection in Vermilion. I've had this traveling exhibition, Trumpets Weird and Wonderful, which was limited to um, 44 instruments from the Utley collection that had never been on display before. But that then includes all kinds of logistic things like getting the right conversation, conservation boxes to, to ship them and packing them. And then I've been doing a lot of preparation for teaching and, and teaching in South Dakota, which at the moment also doesn't happen because we have the teaching program, the graduate program on hold oh, okay. until we are done with the museum redoing. And I'm still now very much involved in, in coming up with a new museum display concepts and label writing and and topic development all of this kind of thing so mm -hmm. yeah. it's not and that's um in in your um question that you sent me you said how long does it take to write these books the answer is i really don't know because yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is just too difficult to to say how much time i actually spend on the books and how much mm -hmm. time i spend on other things of course. Well, if the pandemic keeps on going on, maybe we'll get a volume six. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think after volume five, I may consider yeah. keyboards again. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yes, yeah. that was enough. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us. We both you know, really enjoyed this and we're both big museum people. So to have, you know, someone who's so experienced in that field, you know, such as yourself, come on and give, you know, close to two hours of their time. We're <laughs> so grateful um, that, that you sat down with us. Where can people go to check out your books or, you know, any, any other kind of curiosities they might want to explore <laughs> that were sparked with, with this conversation? What are some good places to point people to? Well, it's definitely the National Music Museum website. Um, under that, you find a link to collections, which has older checklists as well as eMuseum, which is the, the new cataloging platform. And as I said, all of the Arnie Larson collection is there on there. Everything pre-1800 in the National Music Museum is on there. And almost the entire Utley collection is also on there. And it's always a picture, so 
sometimes several, sometimes many pictures and various links to information, what the instrument is, its inscriptions, some measurements, detailed descriptions, a little bit of history and provenance. So I definitely would like uh, to point people who are interested to that. Also under the Music Mu National Music Museum website, there is um, a link to gift shop and to books. And that's where you can buy the books. There are discounts if you want to buy all three of them. For Europeans, um, there is a special link to a distributor in Germany. We don't do that through the National Music Museum Direct. So if, mm -hmm. if you have an international audience, um, they would also find the information there. And yeah, I mean, it was just um, a pleasure to talk to you. I also would like to take the opportunity to express my deep gratitude to the Utley Foundation, who has really, which has really made all this possible. I mean, nothing, nothing would be possible without the financing of the Utley collection, the books, my position, everything. And I'm also very grateful to Jennifer Utley, um, Joan Drella's daughter for continuing the project uh, for another few years. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Sabina Klaus. We're looking yeah. forward to, uh, to chatting with you again. <laughs> well, it was great to meet you too. And I had a lot of fun too. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you again so much to Dr. Sabina Klaus for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. It was awesome getting to hear the history of the Utley Collection, the history of the National Music Museum. Really interesting to, to speak to a museum curator and kind of learn the ins and outs and some of the, the the feelings that go into that profession. And it was really interesting to, to pick your brain. So thank you very much. Yeah, definitely. It, that's always been something that's really interested me about museum work is all the tiny little decisions that go into, you know, how the museum is run and how the exhibits are laid out. And we really appreciate uh, the time uh, that she took and her insights uh, to come on the show today. If you like what you're hearing, you can support us on Patreon. Uh, we also have a Teespring store with some physical merch, as well as a lot of Chris's great arrangements uh, that you can buy there. We'll have all those linked on our website, uh, eabbpodcast.com, along with show notes for every episode and a bunch of resources. So we hope that you'll go check that out and follow us on social media and subscribe, rate, review on all the podcast platforms. That really helps uh, boost the episodes and get them out to more people. This episode's featured album isn't necessarily an album. Uh, we did want to feature again Dr. Klaus's collection that she is currently writing, Trumpets and Other High Brass, as she mentioned in the episode within those uh, each individual collection. There is also an accompaniment DVD that contains uh, audio examples of certain instruments being played. And she even mentioned that one of our previous guests on the show, Jeff Stockham, uh, was actually one of the ones to do some of those recordings. So go on to the museum's gift shop, get more than one so that you can get the discount, right? Because she said that if you get it as a pair of two or three, then it's discounted. So right. go ahead and look up uh, ways of acquiring trumpets and other high brass through the museum's website. And in those collections, 
listen to all the great music and sound examples on the DVDs within it. Thank you again so much for tuning into the show. We will see you next week when we speak to a returning guest, Dr. Michael O'Connor. So we look forward to entertaining you then. <laughs> see you then. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.